Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, proud supporting sponsor of this podcast. Today we are going to uh, take a trip uh, into the second installment of our Oncopharm M&M series. We're looking at basically interesting case reports. So uh, I want to set the, the scene here and we're going to end up talking about kind of two things in big picture. Uh, one is going to be the approach to a patient with uh, exaggerated or extreme toxicity. And then two, maybe the exploratory, not exploratory, emerging role of pharmacogenetics, uh, maybe pharmacogenomics, uh, as far as taking care of patients with cancer. So a, uh, <clears throat> a patient in uh, her mid-50s um, is prescribed sunitinib for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. And this was published uh, in the Journal of Oncology Pharmacy Practice in 2018. Uh, the first author is Narat Patel, and uh, listeners of this podcast will recognize the last name of the corresponding author, which is myself. Um, so the patient is admitted to the hospital um, less than two weeks into starting treatment um, with uh, you know flank pain and is all, at the time found to have some myelosuppression. And eventually... This patient's ANC nadirs uh, at around 600 and the plant count nadirs at around uh, 33. So this is a grade 3 neutropenia and a grade 4 thrombocytopenia. And it happened earlier in treatment. So the usual dosing of sunitinib, the the cycle is 50 milligrams per day, every day for four weeks, then two weeks off. If you go back to the phase 1 studies of sunitinib, the reason for those two weeks off is to allow for recovery of those counts, presumably because of the FLT3 inhibition that you see with sunitinib. There is some myelosuppression associated with the drug that we don't typically see with other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but that's why the two weeks are there at the end of that four weeks to allow counts to recover. So it's not maybe surprising that somebody would have myelosuppression, but what is surprising is the degree of myelosuppression this patient had and how early it happened, less than two weeks into cycle one. Uh, Essentially, the patient received no more uh, sunitinib when they came to the hospital, so really it was just 13 days of sunitinib leading to a grade three neutropenia and grade four thrombocytopenia. So as a pharmacist, whenever a patient has uh, an extreme effect to a drug that appears to be dose-related, right? so this is not an idiosyncratic effect, we know that the drug does this, so presumably it would do it to a greater extent and would do it sooner if there was more sunitinib circulating in the system. Now, it could have been possible maybe to send for a sunitinib level, uh, but we didn't do that. We didn't think that we would be able to do that. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, so the next thing you do is you think about, well, did the patient take it right? Did they take more than prescribed? Uh, was the drug dosed inappropriately for the renal or hepatic function? organ function was fine. Was there a drug interaction? Was the patient on an azole antifungal, something that would delay the metabolism of sunitinib, therefore increasing the risk of toxicity or the the concentrations of sunitinib? None of that uh, was present. So then the next thing that I thought of, that we thought of, was maybe this patient has a deficiency in the ability to metabolize sunitinib, and it's primarily metabolized by CYP34. So we actually sent a CYP3A4 polymorphism, and this was sent to the uh, Mayo Clinical Laboratories. We got this back, and the patient was found to have a polymorphism. So the patient was wild, had one allele that was normal, wild type, and one allele that was uh, had intermediate or reduced activity for metabolizing. So the patient's genotype was star 1, star 22. So um, <clears throat> we now know that this patient does not metabolize 34 substrates as well as the typical population. Um, and just for, for reference here, uh, 
for renal cell carcinoma sunitinib, you know about 60% of patients have some degree of myelosuppression or, or thrombocytopenia, but only 17% have a grade 3 or 4 neutropenia and fewer than 10% have a grade 3 or 4 thrombocytopenia. Now, my guess is some of those patients who had that grade 3 and 4 myelosuppression did have deficiencies in 3 or 4, as this patient did. Now, you might be asking now, well, why would you even try to, to send that test? You know they didn't tolerate it. Um, <clears throat> what additional information do you have now going forward? <clears throat> well, for one thing, we know from a diagnostic uh, standpoint, from the physician perspective, uh, there's a good reason for, for this early toxicity. And if that is the case, reason it stands to reason that the patient would tolerate a lower dose. <clears throat> Excuse me. Additionally, we know the nature of metastatic cancer is that patients will have progression and will get subsequent lines of treatment. So at the time this happened, or subsequent lines of treatment that you would predict in the future it would be three or four substrates, whether it be temsorolimus or everolimus, as mTOR inhibitors or other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, they're all three or four inhibitors, or three or four substrates. So therefore, knowing the CYP3 or 4 uh, genotype of that patient would be helpful potentially in future dosing. Now, uh, that is, in fact, what ended up happening with this patient is the dose was reduced to 25 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off, tolerated that for a while, then eventually had to be dose reduced to 12 and a half milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. Now, moving forward at progression, the patient did uh, get empirically dose-reduced pazopinib and then dose-reduced uh, capoxantinib as well because what was known about the patient's CYP3-4 polymorphism. So, that is that brings us to kind of the next topic here in this uh, in this Oncopharm M&M. The first part we went over was you know how to handle a patient with extreme toxicity. So you rule out drug interactions, you rule out uh, dosing mistakes, over adherence. Potentially, then you consider 3A4 polymorphisms, and there is some emerging data for this in in the literature doing this, and that's what we're going to get into. Uh, those of you who uh, are followers of the New England Journal of Medicine would have seen uh, in this week's issue, uh, published online September 3rd, um, a big cardiology study with more than almost 2,500 patients, a genotype guidance strategy for oral P2Y12 inhibitors and primary PCI. Essentially, patients were randomized to standard of care, which was ticagrelor or prasugrel, or genotype uh, guided dosing. So if the patients were wild-type for CYP2C19, they got clopidogrel. If they had some deficiency in CYP2C19, they got ticagrelor or prasugrel. And what they found was from an efficacy standpoint, and it's one of those composite cardiology endpoints that looks at every bad thing that could happen, there was no difference. It was not in fear between the genotype-guided arm and the standard care arm. However, there, was less, there were fewer bleeding events in the genotype-guided arm uh, because more patients ended up on clopidogrel. Now, I'm not going to get into the merits of this, but I do want to point out that this upfront genotyping is going to go mainstream in cardiology. Now, we're already familiar with this to some extent in oncology because it's pretty standard to, to genotype folks for uh, TPMT, uh, thiopurine methyltransferase, and to a lesser extent, NUD-T15. I think it's NUD-T15 for 6-mercaptopurine. We know about dihydropyridine. Dihydropyridine deficiency for 5-FU and capecitabine. Still not standard, I think, here to genotype folks up front. Uh, and then the same thing for UGT1A1 for ironotecan, which we talked about last week. Seems to be up front for the liposomal ironotecan, but not for conventional ironotecan. Now, these tests you know, are widely available. That you can get these done, and patients are going to be coming to clinic um, with, with known um, genotype statuses. So, for example, folks who have done 21andMe, or 23andMe, uh, they're going to know... For example, 
uh, their um, their CYP one A two status because that there is a test in twenty three and Me that talks about are you an ultra you know are you a they don't say it's a CYP one A two status necessarily I don't think they talk about how you handle caffeine and if you have a high caffeine tolerance what they're testing for are ultra metabolizers of CYP one A two well that's going to have indications for patients maybe taking bendamustine for example which is a CYP one A two substrate so patients are going to be coming in more and more frequently with known genotype statuses so a helpful resource to look at is uh, CPIC the Consortium for Pharmacogenetics. Uh, I don't actually know what it stands for, but CPIC, C-P-I-K, it's a consortium, really great resources available there. So this is going to be coming more and more. Now, I think uh, evidence-based medicine purists would tell you that for this to really go mainstream in the upfront setting, we would need randomized controlled studies similar to what we had that validate the, the effects of like Oncotype DX, is that one arm gets standard of care, one arm gets a genotype-directed dosing, and that shows either better efficacy or less toxicity. That's kind of what we would need. So if you go into clinicaltrials.gov, you're going to find some of this stuff is starting to be done quite a bit. So there's a study uh, looking at, basically it's a proof of concept study, is can you uh, do pharmacogenomic testing, so a whole battery of genes in patients uh, that are going to start chemo for colorectal cancer in a community practice. So this is actually in Duluth, Minnesota, and they're using the one ohm right med test one O-N-E-O-M-E, one ohm, like one genome, one ohm. Um, and you can find that website pretty easily. It's pretty user-friendly to see what the genes are, what a sample report looks like. And there's also a helpful information there on how to obtain insurance covered for, for patients. But this study is just looking at can you get this done and back in patients before they start chemo. That's basically the primary endpoint. It's a proof of concept is can you get this done in a community practice, not in an ivory, ivory tower academic medical center. Um, they're also going to be able to get some data on allelic frequencies, although it's going to be, you know, Duluth, Minnesota, Superior, Wisconsin, so, uh, you know, maybe not applicable to the rest of the population. <clears throat> there is also a study uh, that is being done by the Mayo Clinic looking at pharmacogenomic testing uh, in the use of supportive care medications in patients with all kinds of advanced cancer, stage 3 and stage 4. And really the primary measure here is quality of life. So they're looking at do these genotype status uh, this genotype uh, have any correlation with quality of life and one way it might do that is patients who are CYP2D6 ultra metabolizers will break down on Danzatron very quickly therefore perhaps at a greater risk of chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting and in fact there is a CPIC guideline that patients who are CYP2D6 ultra metabolizers they should receive a drug like granisetron instead of ondansetron since granisetron is not a CYP2D6 substrate and then the folks from Pfizer uh, who happen to be the, the manufacturer of Camptosar, which is a branded uh, iron tea can, are looking at uh, pharmacogenomic blood sampling for uh, basically patients with full fear iron tea can, 5-FU, and leucovorin. So this is uh, coming more and more. I kind of alluded to this uh, last episode with iron tea can that we kind of need new phase one studies for all the different genotypes, uh, wild type, heterozygous, and homozygous for the star 28 allele. And that information looks to be coming. So to summarize, this particular case uh, kind of set off, at least personally in my practice, uh, thinking about this in patients. Now, it's it's not quite ready to be done up front in all patients just because of, of the cost and getting insurance approval to do that. But in the future, I think we're going to see patients that come to us uh, with known genotypes. 
And unless we, and until we have uh, well done studies showing us what the doses should be, uh, we'll be flying a little bit in the dark, which is a little bit worrisome, especially with regards to uh, adjuvant or neoadjuvant treatment in the curative setting. So this was, uh, you know, the second Psalm on the Oncopharm uh, M&M series. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, appreciate uh, all the feedback from uh, our listeners. You can find me Follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod and on Insta at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, genes and doses matter. I'm back. Want to let you know. Uh, had a little uh, lack of, uh, you know, blood to the brain there, I guess. CPIC, Clinical Pharmacogenetics Implementation Consortium. And the website is cpicpgx.org.